Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Dwick, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today is Dr. Maeve McMurdo, who is the director of our Occupational Lung Disease Program, and we'll be talking about beryllium exposure and disease. So, Maeve, welcome. Thank you. So, let's start with, just in general, I think beryllium is a metal that not too many people know much about until they get to have to know about it. So can you tell us a little bit about beryllium? Absolutely. So beryllium, like you said, is one of those things which is really around everywhere. It's lightweight. It's very, very heat resistant. And so it's pretty widely used across a variety of fields, ranging from things like aerospace, so plane building to shipbuilding, and really everywhere in between. And it works fantastically for what it's intended to do, but it also has some unintended consequences, which is where I see beryllium come into play a lot. Yeah, I think I remember one of its qualities is that it's lighter than aluminum and harder than steel. That's a very unusual property to have. So that makes it very useful for many industries, especially in an alloy form, right? Exactly. And I think that's the challenge is that because beryllium is so hard to replace, it really is pretty unique in what it does. It's strong, it's lightweight, it's also heavily heat resistant. So for things like atomic weapon development, it really is the only choice, yeah. which creates challenges when it creates problems. So you mentioned some industries it's used in, like the typical ones. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah. So when you think beryllium, and if you think back to your boards when you got that beryllium question stem, it's almost always a nuclear weapons worker or a nuclear weapons manufacturer. And that's where it was classically used. Beryllium really came to the forefront with the Atomic Energy Division back in the again, 1940s, 1950s, during the development of the nuclear weapons and kind of that process. But it's still widely used both as an alloy and, again, space shuttle engineering, aircraft engineering, shipbuilding, anything where you need something which is going to be lightweight and heat resistant, it's really where it's utilised. And then some kind of strange places too. It's often found in cement and it's also found in a lot of dental alloys. Well, historically it was found in a lot of dental alloys. And so we saw a lot of dental technicians who were exposed to beryllium before this was widely known. Yeah. I know it's even used in some golf clubs and mountain bikes because it's very light as well. So I heard one quote that, yeah, although these typical industries that you mentioned are not very wide-ranging, but there are like hundreds or even thousands of industries that uh, that use beryllium in one way or another. Absolutely. And it makes it challenging because we really don't know how many workers are truly exposed to beryllium. They estimate around 150,000 workers roughly, but in reality, because all these industries use these small amounts kind of here and there, it's probably closer to around 800,000 workers across the United States who are exposed. Wow, that's huge. So what does that uh, do to the lungs? What does beryllium exposure do to the lungs? So beryllium again, and it's inert form, is safe. So just touching beryllium is not going to do anything. But when you cut or grind beryllium or beryllium alloys, the beryllium is released. And for people who are basically unlucky, beryllium can basically trigger an autoimmune response to cause something called sensitization, where it changes the MH to receptor pathway on the T cells and makes the body at risk for autoimmunity. 
Also, from what I know of what, because there's some interaction between the environment and genetics. Some people are more genetically susceptible to beryllium disease than others. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. So what we know is that for some people, there's an HLA GLU69 mutation, which increases the risk of developing sensitization. But even workers who do not have that mutation can develop sensitization. Those who do, though, are more likely to become sensitized when they're exposed. And so that increases the risk. But it's really a mix of the environment, the kind of work you're doing, the kind of exposure that you have, and your underlying genetics that all increase and will alter your risk of sensitization. Yeah, that's a very good point that you make that, you know, while people with the gene mutation are more susceptible to sensitization and disease, people without it also get the disease. So it's not, uh, you know, a slam dunk. It's not that if you don't have it, you are safe. You can still get beryllium disease. Absolutely. I think when they first found this mutation, people got really excited thinking, well, we can screen for it and workers who have the gene can just not work there. But in reality... It's not a slam dunk. There are plenty of workers, in fact, a large number of workers who have sensitization who are not genetically predisposed. It really does come down to a lot of the work that you're doing, how long you're exposed for, and stuff we still don't really understand or know that well. Again, one of the at least benefits, maybe, I don't know if it's called a benefit, is that beryllium disease is known to an exposure to a metal beryllium, and we know that's done in manufacturing settings. So there should be a way for us to kind of screen for it, look out for it, and uh, are there methods to uh, find out whether somebody has beryllium disease or on their way to develop beryllium disease? Yes, and so we can screen for sensitization with something called the LPT, the beryllium LPT, which is a blood test. Is Lymphocyte proliferation. Oh, sorry, acronyms. I love my acronyms. Yeah. It's a test which is very specific, but not all that sensitive. It's only run in a couple of labs throughout the country. I think right now there's three or four labs total, including us, who can run the LPT because it requires a lot of expertise and interpretation and in actually running the sample to get a good result. But we can use that LPT to screen workers who are exposed to beryllium and look for sensitization. And I think I should probably clarify here. So sensitization is really almost like a flag for disease. Being sensitized itself does not mean you have beryllium disease, but it means you are at risk for beryllium disease, which I think is sometimes challenging for patients to understand and challenging for us to understand. It's kind of, it's the flashing orange light, but it's not the red light quite yet. Yeah, I mean, the way I, I used to explain it to my patients is like there's exposure and not everybody who's exposed gets sensitized or allergic. And then some of those sensitized move on to have the full spectrum of disease. So it's really kind of multiple stages. Does that make sense? Exactly. It's really a pathway. And the challenge is with beryllium that we don't know when you're going to cross that pathway. You can work with beryllium for years and years, then become sensitized. Or you can work with it once and become sensitized. And so we need to have this ongoing screening process. It's not enough to screen once and be done you really require ongoing screening throughout the time you're exposed to beryllium and also once you're no longer exposed to beryllium because even after you've been exposed and stopped being exposed, you can still develop sensitization in theory. Yeah, that's a good point. And I remember seeing these patients, I've seen people get sensitized and actually develop granulomas within three weeks of, uh, of exposure and 30 years after exposure. There is really no rule of thumb to say just once you're exposed, you're always at risk. Exactly. And so screening right now is something which really has to happen again, almost on an annual basis, as long as you're exposed. The challenge is, so how we think about kind of formalizing screening, in workers who have known exposure, it's pretty straightforward. But what we're seeing now is, like you mentioned, there are a lot of industries where we use beryllium, where the exposure is either not known to the workers or not even known to potentially the manufacturers. 
And those workers aren't always getting screened in the same frequency or according to the guidelines because, again, they're not that classic slam dunk, I was exposed to a brilliant patient. I think it's a good way to kind of segue into that is who really should be screened for beryllium exposure and sensitization? There's a, you started mentioning that, but if you are a clinician seeing a patient, then who should you think about you know, maybe testing for possible beryllium exposure or beryllium sensitization? It's a good question. So a lot of the workers who have known exposure are going to be screened for their employer, and that's usually how screening should be occurring. I think for a clinician, again, it depends on kind of where you're seeing these patients, say for a general pulmonologist, seeing a patient who you think, huh, doesn't quite add up. You've got maybe sarcoid, but this is not quite right, or things just aren't quite making sense. It's really anyone who's been working with beryllium full stop. There is no safe level of beryllium exposure at which you cannot become sensitized. Now, OSHA recently dropped their permissible exposure limit, the PEL, to a much lower level, which should in theory reduce the risk of beryllium sensitization and decrease the numbers. But the challenge is that, again, like I mentioned, that's great for employers who, again, are where they're using Brilliant, who are following the standard. But for those smaller employers or for employers maybe aren't necessarily aware of the standard, that may not change workers' exposure. Yeah, it's a great one. And before moving on to how we interpret the LPT as a screening test, there's some debate in the literature and among um, the uh, industry as like, are we doing screening or are we doing surveillance for these patients, you know? Mm-hmm. And you just kind of shed some light on that because screening is really for the patient's sake. Surveillance is more for to make sure that the work conditions are appropriate. Can you speak to that a little bit? I can. And I think it's a challenging debate for sure. When I think about it, really, I think about this as being screening for the patients because the reality is, like I mentioned, you can be exposed to high levels for years and not become sensitized until, say, you get exposed to low levels. There's no rhyme or reason. Surveillance is really looking for disease in the working population to try and, again, improve the workplace conditions. And if we see clusters of sensitization occurring out of the blue, that certainly can be a clue that something's not quite right in the workplace. Maybe an HVAC system broken. Maybe something's not, again, being followed in terms of protocol. But in reality, because there's not that clear time frame from exposure to disease, I think it really is screening for patients, not surveillance. Yeah. And the way I think of it, probably both are necessary. You know, yeah. you need to do screening to make sure that you're protecting the individual patients, but you need to do surveillance to make sure that the work conditions are appropriate and there's no, I guess, source for clusters, as you pointed out. Yeah. Exactly. I think really there's been a lot of work in this area and the LPT was a big step forward. I mean, historically, we didn't have this up until the 1970s, 1980s, yeah. really in widespread use, and it's really changed how we practice and think about Brilliant. Because initially we thought that actually we'd gotten rid of chronic brilliant disease. Yeah. And we hadn't, it turns That's out. That's a great segue into maybe asking you about, maybe tell us what is the lymphocyte proliferation test, the LPT, how it is done and how it's uh, interpreted. Perfect. So basically the LPT is looking at the body's response to beryllium and it's looking for the, that abnormal cell proliferation and response to beryllium exposure. So it literally is taking a blood sample and looking in real time and seeing what those cells do. It is a great test, it's very specific, but it's not all that sensitive. And so there is a risk of a false negative test, especially if people are on steroids, if they're smoking potentially, anything which can suppress the immune response. And it can just be, again, a bad day immune-wise. And so that's why a single negative test is not necessarily, again, a slam dunk that you don't have brilliant sensitization. You really want to have ongoing testing. A positive test is much more likely to be a true positive but because there is some variation, OSHA does actually require two positive tests to confirm the diagnosis of sensitization. So either two positives, one positive and one borderline, 
or free borderlines. And to clarify that, because that's also not particularly necessarily obvious. So when we're looking at testing, a positive is having more than two indices, so basically cell responses greater than free standard indexes. And so if you've got more than two, it's a slam dunk positive. Two of those means you're sensitized. Yeah. If you've got some variant that, that can be a borderline, and that can still be a sign of sensitization, but it's a little bit harder sometimes to tease that out. And just so that not to confuse our listeners into the detail, these will make more sense to people who look at these tests on a regular basis. Most of our uh, providers and listeners probably do not do this testing. The key is identify the patients with potential history of exposure and send them to testing. Mostly the centers that do the testing do the interpretation as well, just kind of here to try to get our listeners a sense of how it's done because it's not a straightforward test. It's complicated. It needs a lot of preparation. It needs a lot of expertise. And uh, the key is just to send the sample or the patient to a place that does that testing. Exactly. And honestly, I think really what I tell people is if you've got any concern for brilliant-related disease, it's worth getting a patient seen at a specialized center, even just for a one-time visit, because this is kind of, as I'm saying, it's pretty complicated. Yeah. And there's a lot of nuance and detail, both in terms of if you make the diagnosis and if you don't make the diagnosis, kind of what happens next. So, yeah, what's the expectation now once somebody... Regardless of the criteria you use, a positive, two positive tests or a positive uh, and a couple of borderlines, what is next? So somebody is identified as, in your term, sensitized. Mm -hmm. what, what is next for them? So really the big thing is thinking about surveillance for chronic brilliant disease. So like I mentioned, sensitization is kind of the first checkbox in the pathway towards disease. And chronic brilliant disease is basically an autoimmune disease that mimics sarcoidosis. It's granulomous inflammation in the lungs primarily which can present actually really subtly. So when we first discovered this disease and kind of back in the bad old days of brilliant exposure, people were really sick when they came in. They were profoundly short of breath, they had weight loss, they had cough, they were very, very fatigued. But since we've started screening for this and looking for this earlier and recognising it, what I see now, especially because I'm screening people who are brilliant sensitised, is a lot of people who have very mild disease. It may look like asthma, they may just feel not quite right, Again, they're still really physically active, so they're doing everything, but it's harder than it used to be. They're saying, you know, I'm wearing my mask and I feel short of breath. I can only climb two flights of stairs, not three. This is not an obvious necessarily presentation. But then when you get the CAT scan and get the breathing test, things again just don't look quite right. We can see reduction in FVC, reduction in FEV1, reduction in DLCO. On the pulmonary function, pulmonary function testing. testing. Yeah. It can really look like anything. Often it looks like asthma, and I see a lot of CBD, chronic brilliant disease, that mimics asthma in these workers. And then very subtle changes often on the CAT scan. Classically, we talk about ground glass and nodularity, but I see a lot of early disease, which kind of just looks not quite right. Yeah. And again, it's a challenge. What also struck me as evaluated these patients is that many of them are completely asymptomatic. They just show up based on a positive LPT, and that's one of the main strengths for the lymphocyte proliferation test test is that it identifies patients before they even develop any symptoms. Absolutely, because I mean, the goal is to catch these workers early. I tell them, you know, chronic brain disease is treatable. It's one of the rare occupational lung diseases where we really can treat this, control this, and have you live a pretty normal life. But that stems on catching it early. Yeah. If we don't catch it till it's advanced and fibrotic, I have much less in the way of treatment options. If we catch you when you're asymptomatic, I often can just watch you and not have you on treatment. And if things change, we start treatments right away, we get you back to feeling good. purpose of testing is to determine whether they have uh, chronic beryllium disease, whether they advance from synthesization to disease. So 
What kind of tests do you do for that and how accurate are they in making the diagnosis? So I kind of gave you a hint already when I was talking about what I'm looking for, but really when we're talking about screening for chronic brain disease, it's a combination of spirometry, so breathing tests, the CAT scan, normally a high res, and then the challenging thing is that, like I mentioned, this disease can be really, really subtle. The only way to really make a slam dunk diagnosis of chronic brain disease is to get a biopsy, so transbronchial biopsies. But even that's not 100%. Because if you think about chronic brain disease, especially early, it can be really patchy. Some parts of the lungs have granulomas, some parts don't. And so the bronchoscopy may not capture that granulomas information, especially if patients are relatively well and not symptomatic. There are other things which can be helpful. So the BAL, LPT, lymphocyte proliferation testing on the BAL fluid. If that's lavage. <laughs> Acronyms. Yes, yeah. If that's positive, that's really helpful. And that strongly supports the diagnosis of chronic brilliant disease. Similarly, even if the biopsy is negative, we see a lot of lymphocytes on the bronchial alveolar lavage, the BAL, with imaging changes. That can also be enough to make a diagnosis sometimes. So there's multiple pathways, but again, it requires a fair amount of knowledge of what the regulations are and a fair amount of experience with seeing these patients with kind of these weird presentations of chronic brilliant disease. Yeah, I mean, I just to make a point, I think you mentioned sarcoidosis earlier, and most people, the only way they hear about chronic beryllium disease is that it's on the list of differential diagnosis for sarcoidosis. So only a few specialized centers have seen enough patients to be able to recognize and diagnose them appropriately. This is why, as you mentioned, early referral when, suspe when suspected is important. I can tell you how many times I've seen patients who had a positive LPT, uh, but they were evaluated elsewhere. They had a normal spirometry, normal x-ray, normal CAT scan, and they were told they have nothing, they don't have the disease, but they come here, we do a bronchoscopy on them, and you have granulomas in the lung. They may not have advanced clinically active or like significant limitations on the lungs, but that they already have the disease, and that's, I think, very important to, to make that diagnosis if appropriate. Hugely. I mean, it changes a, recognizing about ongoing work, because like you mentioned, again, these are often people who are young and healthy and working. And what we know is people with chronic beryllium disease are really the recommendations to be out of the workplace, to be no longer exposed to beryllium. And so making that diagnosis is really important and making that happen. Also getting workers' compensation, which is, again, really important, because these are really skilled laborers doing often really challenging and very specialized work that pays well. And so if they can't work that job anymore, we need to make sure that they have a way of being retrained and getting compensated for that too. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things I want to follow up on. One is exposure, continued exposure. You know, when do you tell workers to no longer be exposed to beryllium? I know it's a tricky topic and whether they have sensitization or disease, whether they can get another job or not. So there are a lot of factors to think about it. So how do you approach that with your patients? It's really a patient-centered discussion because, like you said, it's complicated. And my general rule of thumb is that if you're sensitized, we know there is probably an increased risk of developing chronic beryllium disease of ongoing exposure. And so ideally, you would leave the workplace. I do have a lot of patients who don't leave the workplace at that point, though. Again, like I said, these are skilled jobs, and it's sometimes challenging to say, you know, I might have a risk of disease, let me change my entire life. Once you have chronic brilliant disease, I'm pretty firm that really we need to get you out of the workplace because it's very hard to treat and control chronic brilliant disease if you've got ongoing exposure to beryllium. Not everyone does, but that's my recommendation. I think one thing which has been really helpful and what I'm really grateful for is the EICPA, which, sorry, another acronym, basically the reimbursement policy for people who've got brilliant-related disease, which is a government policy, but basically it's a program that reimburses these workers, helps them, again, get financial support for ongoing screening. And it's got a 
really, really well streamlined protocol to follow to get workers enrolled and registered, which makes it a lot easier. I have workers who go through other pathways like the black lung pathway, which requires a lot of litigation, a lot of back and forth. The EIOCPA, the, again, brilliant pathway, is much more straightforward. It's really, do you have disease? Great, here you go. And that makes it a lot less stressful both for workers and for employers. Yeah. And the, my conversation about exposure with patients, it's usually that, you know, we don't have direct evidence that uh, continued exposure will worsen, will worsen the disease, but absence of that evidence doesn't mean it's not happening. And it just makes sense clinically and medically that if you're allergic or sensitized to something, just to avoid it. You know, I think uh, that's my general advice. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's no slam dunk evidence, but there are some cohorts, particularly people who have heavy exposure machinists, where we saw that, again, those who had ongoing exposure did have an increased risk of CBD. So I think that is not necessarily a slam dunk, but it's enough that I would say, if it was me, yeah. I'll get out of there. Clearly, I think you and I would both recommend removal from exposure. What else? How else can you treat uh, these patients? And do you always treat them or do you sometimes watch and sometimes treat? And what's your approach? Again, I think this is where having a lot of experience and seeing all these patients is really helpful. So I don't always treat. If people are not symptomatic, if they feel good, if their pulmonary function testing is stable, then I often will just watch and monitor. But if things are progressing or things are changing, even if things are still normal, I often start having the discussion about whether we should start treatment. First-line treatment is typically steroids, so prednisone, and that usually works really well. I've got a lot of patients I'm seeing currently have got more of a sort of small airway asthma-like phenotype, and I use a lot of inhaled steroids too, which has actually been helpful in getting the steroid dosing down. And then like sarcoid, the steroid-sparing agents actually also work really well here. It's mepotrexate. There's some data for infliximab, though I don't typically need to go that far on the MURN. Again, there are a lot of options. This is one of those diseases that really is treatable, very much so. Yeah, it seems like it all works around immune suppression, basically, because you explained it a little bit at the beginning, but maybe it's worth revisiting as we talk about treatment, is that beryllium itself does not damage the lung. It's the lung's response, the immune system response to the beryllium that does the damage. So most treatment really focuses on reducing the immune response to beryllium. Exactly. I basically tell patients that they have an autoimmune disease. It's not the brilliant that's causing the problem. It's the brilliant that triggered the pathway, which is now active, and we need to turn it off. Yeah, that's an important point. But of course, if it were not for the brilliant, this would not have happened. So it's hard to say it's not causing the problem, no. but it's not directly causing the problem. It's the, yeah, it's the yeah. gasoline, it's not the fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. That's, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, so now as um, if somebody out there, and this uh, pro- podcast is designed for... Uh, providers, physicians, and other healthcare providers. Any um, advice to them and when to uh, suspect and refer a patient and how to do that? So I think the big thing is, again, taking your thorough occupational history. I know I say this every time I talk to anybody about occupational lung disease, but really it is where the history matters. And I think the challenge with beryllium is that workers, like I said, may not always know they're exposed, but there are some clues, like shipbuilding, like nuclear weapons, Anything which sounds like it might use something that's lightweight and aerodynamic, that's a kind of a hint. I think if workers are worried, or if you are worried, or if you see sarcoid and you're kind of going, huh, that's when I think about referring. And if they want to refer, I actually wrote the number down because I always forget my phone number, which is embarrassing, but it's uh, 216-445-0746. That's a Brilliam Centre phone line, and I can put that on the website too, potentially. But basically just reach out to us and say, I've got a patient who's been exposed to Brilliam, or I think might have been exposed and we can kind of coordinate testing and next steps, advise what can be done locally and what needs to be done at the Cleveland Clinic and kind of take it from there. 
So the best way is just maybe to reach out to you or call the respiratory institute or at the Cleveland Clinic and they'll get, they'll get an appointment with somebody. That's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So as we wrap this up, this has been very helpful, I think very eye-opening. I hope our listeners will benefit from all uh, the great information you have provided about beryllium exposure and disease. Let me try to kind of wrap up with a few key points about this is that you know, beryllium exposure uh, may be happening in more locations than we think about. It's not just in primary mining and manufacturing. There are lots and lots of industries who use beryllium and alloys, uh, like uh, anyway from aerospace, nuclear weapons, but also things like computers and things as even common as golf clubs and bicycles. So the key is, if you are a worker, you know, or you have a worker with, with you know, to just to do a detailed history, as you said, of, of exposure. It can be clinically confused with sarcoidosis because of the same clinical presentation. So this is when if you have somebody with sarcoid but things don't add up, is to think about beryllium disease testing uh, or referral. There are some required screening by OSHA for the for this disease. So if somebody comes to you with a positive test, take it very seriously because that means, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have beryllium disease, but it, it's a red flag, as you pointed to. You are moving down the path from exposure to sensitization, the next step would be disease and something that's worth evaluating. And uh, the testing is not perfect. You know, the, the lymphocyte proliferation test we talked about, it's not perfect, but it's the best tool we have now to identify these patients early. And you emphasized multiple times the importance of early referral if you suspect the patient has chronic William disease or brilliant sensitization. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I just want to hop on again. Early referral really is key here. Brilliant is complicated, and then workers' comp is complicated, and the EICPA pathway, while it will streamline the most, is still not the most straightforward to navigate. So especially for patients who may need to leave their job, having someone who's seen a lot of chronic brilliant disease see the patient and kind of advise about next steps can be really helpful, and I think makes patients' lives significantly easier. So if you're worried about brilliant, just refer. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. McMurdo, for this very useful podcast. And again, this is Ryan Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute, host of this podcast. And my guest today was Dr. Maeve McMurdo, who's the director of Occupational Lung Disease Program. And the focus of our discussion was beryllium exposure and disease. Thank you all for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triad Wake MD. Thank you. <laughs>